want to read from the book of Revelation and today I want to read from Revelation chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 12 uh, through to the end of the chapter, verse 20, and I'm going to read from the, the New Living Translation. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now that's God's word for us today. Well, the opening verse of Revelation tells us, depending on the translation, that it is a revelation of or from Jesus Christ. And both translations are correct in that it is both a message from Jesus to his church and at the same time it is also a message about Jesus. So it's not a surprise that the first vision that John sees is a vision of Jesus. It's also no surprise that a vision of Jesus, the living word, should begin with speech. For it was when John was in the spirit on the Lord's day that he heard a voice. We don't know exactly what this phrase in the spirit means, but the language is very reminiscent of that used in Ezekiel uh, chapter 2 and 3 and uh, 14 and 24. The trumpet-like voice recalls Moses' experience in Exodus 19, so it's kind of serving to place John on the same level as the Old Testament prophets. But it also serves to highlight the activity and the authority of the Holy Spirit in this revelation, and to remind the recipients of the letter, including us, that the Holy Spirit was not restricted by Roman might or authority. John was cut off from the fellowship and communal worship of the churches that he pastored, but he wasn't cut off from fellowship with Jesus in the Holy Spirit. Throughout 2020, uh, up to the present day, uh, the fellowship and communal worship of the church has been restricted because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But our fellowship with and worship of Christ by the Spirit has remained intimate and close. In John 14 and 26, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. The Greek word used there is paraclete, and it translates as one who draws alongside to help. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws alongside us, wherever we are, whatever our circumstances may be. He wasn't hindered by John's exile in Patmos. He wasn't restricted by the power of the Roman garrison there. Rather, the Holy Spirit meets us wherever we are, 
strengthening, encouraging and equipping us to patiently endure and to remain faithful to Jesus. He wasn't hindered by the might and power of Rome and he is not hindered by the varying circumstances of our lives. And furthermore, this phrase in, this, in the Spirit and the Lord's Day kind of implies that despite his difficult circumstances, John was actively seeking to draw near to God in worship and in prayer. God says through the prophet Jeremiah, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. In Philippians 4 and 7, the Apostle Paul writes about the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. It's a very encouraging promise. But that promise is preconditioned by the preceding verse. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's only then that Paul says, that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. The peace of God that we so desire is conditional on us bringing to God in prayer the very things that are robbing us of our peace. He is found by those who seek him. And so it's highly likely that John was doing exactly that, bringing to God in prayer the anxieties and concerns that he had for his beloved congregations and what they were going through. Now we should note that John was not having an internal mystical experience here, rather he was experiencing something that was external to himself. He heard an actual voice and he turned around to see the voice and later he felt the touch of a hand. As one commentary points out, the book of Revelation is the most sensual document in the New Testament, filled with references to things seen and heard and smelled and touched and even tasted. When John turned around, the first thing he saw was seven gold lampstands, which we're told in verse 20 represent the seven churches. Among the seven gold lampstands he saw a figure walking in their midst whom he describes as the Son of Man. Now on one level this is simply a Hebraic way of saying a human being, but this term redirects us to a vision in Daniel 7 in which a Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days and given dominion, glory and kingship. For the Jews, the Son of Man came to represent the central figure of history, the Messiah, the one to whom are the kingdoms of the world are given and to whom all people of every tribe and language group owe their total allegiance. One scholar describes this title as the most pretentious title that anyone could have used about themselves in the ancient Near East. And yet... It was Jesus' preferred title for himself. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, he confirms the truth of it, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if the title Son of Man is a Hebraic way of saying human being, then this Son of Man is like no human being that John has ever seen, but had only read about. For this vision picks up elements from Zechariah 4, Daniel 3 and 7 and 10, Ezekiel 1 and 9, Isaiah 49 and even Judges chapter 6. 
as J.C. Thomas and Frank Mackey are right, in this vision, such a conversion of elements and details indicates that the revelation of Jesus Christ continues in astounding fashion as he is seen and experienced as never before. It was certainly a vision of Jesus that was beyond John's experience, for his immediate response was to fall down like someone who was dead. Now we should pause to take careful note of this response. For John was one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, he was the beloved disciple, one of Jesus' closest friends. By the time of his exile, all the other apostles had been martyred. He was the last. So at that point, there was probably no one on earth who had been as close to Jesus or who knew him as well as John did. But here in exile on Patmos, he saw Jesus as he'd never seen him before and he was terrified, so terrified that he played dead. One of my favourite books is The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey and this is Jesus as John had never known him, but Jesus as everyone will one day know him. You know, there's an old joke that God made humans in his image and we returned the favour. We always want to domesticate Jesus to make him more manageable, more someone that we can deal with on our terms. But that's just not possible. For he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, the supreme power and authority in all creation. And he is glori gloriously and terrifyingly, majestically powerful. Yet, this terrifyingly majestic, powerful Christ is also the Good Shepherd, who gave his life for the sheep. He's the one who reached out and touched the leper and said, I am willing, be clean. So it should not surprise us that in John's moment of terror, uh, Jesus reached out his right hand and touched him and told him not to be afraid. This command not to be afraid is one of the most repeated commands in the Bible and it tells us something really important about the character of God. If you or I had been in John's place, we would have responded the same way with fear and terror, but God doesn't want us to be terrified of him. He wants us to know that we are loved and that with him repentant sinners can find mercy and so in love and compassion he always reaches out to us and says, don't be afraid. Jesus then adds to John's description of him calling himself the first and the last and as we saw in a previous study that's a reference to his eternal nature. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the origin and destiny of all creation. He's also the living one who was dead and who's alive forevermore and who holds the keys of death in the grave. As one preacher put it, death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. For the recipients of this letter, death was the ultimate threat of the Roman Empire, but Jesus is telling them here that death is no longer a threat because he has conquered it. And so they can be bold and fearless in their proclamation of the gospel and uncompromising in their faithful allegiance to Jesus. And furthermore, he holds the key the keys to death and the grave, and that means not only has he conquered death, but he rules over it as well. 
And so believers are assured that whatever suffering or trials we must endure, if we persevere, we will reign forever with Christ. With that in mind, the therefore of verse 19 is incredibly significant, for it tells us that John is commissioned to write down all the visions that follow because of who Jesus is and because of his victory over the powers of death and the grave. Everything that's revealed about Jesus here in Revelation 1 is woven through the rest of the book. As the visions unfold, the believers in Asia Minor would come into a deeper, fuller understanding of who Jesus is and of the unseen realities that were all around them. Just beyond the range of normal sight, there is more going on than meets the eye. And as the visions of Revelation pull back the curtain on those realities so that they will become visible to these hard-pressed believers. Most importantly, they will give them a new and expanded vision of who Jesus is and as a result, the might and the power of Rome would be put in its proper perspective. For Revelation unveils the terrifying majesty, power and glory of Jesus and the feebleness of all powers and all empires that are arrayed against him. It would give these believers in Asia Minor boldness to proclaim that Jesus is Lord regardless of the cost. A clearer vision of Jesus would enable these hard-pressed disciples to patiently endure persecution and suffering that would come as a result of that allegiance. For as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17 and 18, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And we should be in no doubt that if that's what the message of Revelation will do for those believers in Asia Minor, they will do no less for us. What the church needs more than anything else today is to have our eyes open to see what Revelation is trying to show us. We need to see that whilst Jesus is the good shepherd who comes and searches for the lost sheep, that he is the loving saviour who gave himself for us and all the other wonderfully encouraging things that the Bible tells us, nonetheless, we need to see that he is the almighty before whom all other powers and all principalities must fall. We need to see Jesus whose eyes like fire burn through our pretensions and falsehoods, the masks that we wear to the world, exposing and burning away our idolatries. Accordingly, we need to see that he is not just to be worshipped on a Sunday in a service, but is to be obeyed 24-7. We need to see and understand what it means that Jesus is the first and the last, the living one who was dead but who is alive forevermore, the one who now holds the keys of death in the grave. Having conquered them, he has power and authority over them. What we need more than anything today 
is at last to begin to understand what it means that Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because one day we will all stand before his glorious, terrifyingly powerful majesty and we will know the fullness of that truth. And for those who have overcome, that moment will be one of unspeakable joy. But for those who have not surrendered to his kingly rule, it will be one of unimaginable terror. And so, more than anything perhaps, what we really need is to, to do is to heed the words of Jesus, the word, first words that he preached, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. May God bless you in the week ahead.